We have this data where we timestamp each message on the execution layer, and we do the same for messages on the consensus layer. So on the execution layer, that's transactions, and on the consensus layer, that's blocks. And we do notice that blocks, even though they are larger than transactions, in some cases, they are even propagated faster than transactions globally because the P2P network is like a self-optimizing network. Scraping Bits is brought to you by the following sponsors. MEV Protocol. Maximize your ETH staking value with MEV ETH, exclusively on MEV.io. And Composable. Execute any intent on any chain coming soon to Mantis.app. That's M-A-N-T-I-S dot A-double-P. GM, GM, everyone. My name is Tagachi, the host of Scraping Bits. Today, I'm with another special guest, Mempirate from Chainbound. How's it going, friend? Hey, man. It's going very well. Thanks for having me. It's my first podcast, I just want to say, so it's an honor to be here. It's an honor to have you on. I'm having a lot of people on that it's the first time on the podcast, or any podcast. So it's, it's great to have people like yourself finally getting them into the world of podcasting and getting the names out there. So very keen to, to spread the word of the famous mem pirate. It's time. It's time. Release the Kraken. For the people that aren't familiar with you, because you have been in stealth, you know, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so I'm Jonas or Mempirate. I am currently the CTO and co-founder of Chainbound, which is a company that works on a lot of high-performance, low-latency infrastructure, mainly in the MEV supply chain at the moment. The way I got started was I lost a bunch of money in 2017 in crypto by trying to invest in shitcoins like everybody else back then. I kind of stuck around even after losing all that money and got into the technical stuff because I was studying computer science in school back then. And at one point, I think 2021 or something, I got into MEV. I met some guys that were looking for a developer to build a sniping bot. Back then, I didn't really know a ton about the whole MEV space, but we got started on it because it was pretty early and it worked out pretty well back then. So that's a good start. Some other context. I used a lot of like low latency products because this was before the Flashbots auction came out. So everything was spamming and latency sensitive and, and all of that stuff. And that's actually where I got the idea of building a low latency mempool service because I wanted to use it myself. But I didn't really do it back then. But the idea did pop up a couple of years later. And that's where we are now. What is Chainbound exactly? Give us a high-level overview of this low-latency startup you have. Yeah, so Chainbound is a company we built. We tried to build a couple of products. We're not going all in on a single product. And the first product was Fiber, which is a mempool service, and also now a service for streaming blocks on the consensus layer, which is also important in some cases. And we also do stuff in the general MEV supply chain. So for example, our customers, they also submit bundles to builders and they want to do this with as little friction as possible. So we also released Echo, which is a service where people can submit bundles to like a single unified endpoint. And then they will be multiplexed to all of these different builders and we try to adhere to a single interface so that people don't have to worry about the differences in all of the builder interfaces. And we also plan to do global replication so that we have lower latency for submitting all of those bundles because builders are quite geographically distributed across the EU and the US. It seems like most of the builders, though, all the big ones are in, in London, actually, like specifically London. Like you have Rsync and Titan there, and those are the major ones. 
I think I don't know where Beaver Build is. It must be in the US, right? That is actually a good question. I think Beaver Build is no. I think they're also in Europe around France. Is my guess. Oh, okay. So it seems like the monopoly is all next to London, then, or in England. Yeah, the concentration in Europe is definitely higher. That's true. It's so ironic. Your name, your trailer is called Fiber, and in Australia, Fiber Network is even though it's the best, it's still one of the worst in the world. It's oh shit! So random, <laughs> but yeah, really unfortunate for me. I hope there's no association with our <laughs> products. No, no, it seems like the opposite. Your only competitor is Blocksrout, right? A team of 75 people, I believe. And they do the same thing. They aggregate all the mempools into a single spot and they have an API where people can use it and they charge prices and you guys do the same thing. Except in February, you did like 89% better than them. Like not better, but like you were faster than them 89% of the time. It's a bit different now. It's more like around like 50-50, which is still remarkable because your team is like two, three people. I think two people on Fiber, one on Echo, right? So that's a remarkable achievement. And how was that even achieved? First of all, 50-50 is not bad. That's still crazy. I believe you have some stuff in the pipelines to bring that stuff up, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's true that since the article came out, Blockshot has definitely been getting faster again. So now it's more closer to 50-50. And if you want up-to-date stats, you guys can always check out the mempool dumpster by Flashbots. They do like end-of-day reports comparing different mempool services. So that's interesting. I also want to mention Blockshot, they do a lot more than we do. They have a mempool service, but they also have a relay they also have builder they also work on all of these other latency optimizations down the stack for validators and stuff like that they have a lot going on having said that blockchain hasn't had a lot of competition in the mempool service space for a long time so we, we knew that there was a market because I used mempool services. I wasn't really satisfied with what was there at the time. And we kind of got started knowing that there was a lot of cool like Rust infrastructure coming out. So for example, Red by the Paradigm team is a super modular. It's built in a super modular way where you can reuse components, drop all the components you don't need and just put them back together in a way that suits you best. And so I think one of the ways that we were able to really compete was by basically getting rid of everything we don't need, making our our software as lightweight and as efficient as possible, which allowed us to deploy really a lot of nodes and connect to a ton of peers, which in the end is what basically drives your performance. So I can't say this for sure because I don't know how Blockstrat's infrastructure is actually built, but I think it has something to do with that as well. Yeah, like the geolocation of everything. Yeah, geolocation, making sure that you have global network coverage, that you're connecting to all of the peers that send a lot of transactions, stuff like that. I guess everybody really does that, though. If you have nodes, you kind of put them all across the world to cover the all the bases, and that's about it. It would be really expensive, though, to do this. Well, yeah, that's where having your software be super lightweight provides a big cost advantage, right? Because you can deploy a lot of them at, at a relatively low cost. And about your point about everybody doing the global distribution stuff, it's true. But there are other factors that are important. So every transaction, for example, you have to process before to find out if the transaction is actually valid. You have to do some preliminary checks like recover the signature, uh, recover the signer, I should say. That's like a cryptographic operation. It's an ECDSA signature recovery. So it takes some time. There's some ways to optimize that. But I would say on the networking side, like internal networking. So the network links between the nodes are also important, like what protocols you use there, whether it's TCP, UDP, all of that stuff can make a big difference. And then the way that you interface with your customers, like do you use WebSockets? Do you use like HTTP service and events? Do you use gRPC? There are all sorts of trade-offs in that. And if you can put them together 
in the best possible combination, you really do have an advantage. On the peering side, which is also a very interesting topic, not every peer is equal in the sense of there are a lot of peers that don't even send any transactions at all. They're just run by people that want to read from the state database or stuff like that. But there are also nodes that are potentially run by RPC providers. And so you need to be able to distinguish these nodes and connect to the useful ones and basically don't pay too much attention to the ones that don't send you any transactions. So you kind of got a trial and error. Or can you see all the transactions before you connect? No, it's actually you have to connect to them. You have to gather some information, have like some sort of scoring system and all of that stuff. And then you basically kick out the peers that that don't fit your particular performance profile. Okay, interesting. You would have to connect to everything and see what's kicking off. Yes, that's true. That's true. So we also collect a lot of data on on the peers on the Ethereum network. And we have a dashboard that lays everything out in a big map and you can kind of see where all of the peers are. I've seen that. I think you tweeted about that, right? Yeah, we did. That's a cool side effect that you get from collecting all of this data. I would imagine they're all in the Europe region. I can't imagine them really anywhere else, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, so you have Hetzner in Europe, which is a big hotspot, even though they don't really encourage running your Ethereum software there. I, I think actually they prohibit it even, but I'm not sure about that. That's an interesting one. And then in the United States, you do have a lot of nodes, specifically in Virginia, in the US East one region, because uh, it's the cheapest AWS region. And I think since everyone got started there, like there's been some concentration of infrastructure around that area. Asia also is growing in terms of activity. Singapore is huge. Tokyo is also huge. Actually, South Korea, now that I look at it, Seoul is also getting pretty big. But it it is like the interesting thing about Ethereum and the technical challenge for a good mempool service is that the nodes are geographically distributed. You have to be able to cover a lot of ground or you won't be able to compete. That does make it an interesting technical challenge. Yeah, then you have to run up all these different AWS kind of servers in these different regions, which does end up costing a lot, right? Yeah, it's true. And you also have to like relay all of the information between the regions. You have a lot of egress costs when people connect to your API and stuff like that. So there is some infrastructure overhead. When you think about it, since you are competing with Blockstrow and it's kind of de facto standard, if you're an MEV team, right, and you're trying to get to a level playing field with each other, and one person has the advantage of connecting with yourself with Blockstrow, then everyone else has to connect to them, or at least have their own infrastructure that can compete. But there is no one else competing, it looks like, at least the level of you guys and Blockstrow. So it's like you either connect to them or you just don't win. If you're doing like short tail, long tail, I guess latency doesn't matter if nobody else is finding the same strategies. But after, you know, a block or two, then I guess on-chain quants can find it and reverse engineer strategies and push it out. So that's when it does matter. I don't know, you could obfuscate it as well in transactions some ways. But either way, it's a major thing that there's only like two options. That's why they're so rich and doing so well. It's because you have to use them, otherwise you just can't compete. Why even create a SaaS and not use it for yourself if it is up to par and sometimes better when it was in February? Well, I think positioning yourself as like a service provider, it, it basically depends on what you want to do, right? If you're really interested in running arbitrage strategies or like liquidation strategies or sexx arb, whatever, it makes more sense to just build this in-house. But we really wanted to offer a service because that's mainly where my interest lies. Like I I really, me and the co-founder, at least, we really care about the infrastructure side. We want to focus on that full-time and not run trading strategies Um, because like 
as soon as you use your, your own network for running tr trading strategies, you lose all neutrality and people don't really trust you anymore because it could be that you're stealing their strategies or you're censoring them or whatever. So we want to remain a, a service provider that's neutral. It is a good long-term game strategy because I feel like, I mean, it's not a good strategy to begin with because it is, you know, when it takes all or at minimum making a little bit relative to someone else taking it all. It's like it's a piece of a pie and someone takes it and then eventually there's nothing. But if you build a startup, you can argue it's the same thing, but at least you get something out of it that could still function, even if other people are doing the same thing. Exactly. And it's not just for like MEV searchers, because you're right that MEV is, is kind of a zero sum game. And you could even argue that it's a, a negative sum game since it can drive away user activity. But also for builders, this is also interesting because to build the best blocks, you really want to increase your information advantage compared to other builders, or you want to know everything that's in the mempool as soon as possible for you to build the best blocks. It's not just your private order flow. You need to combine that with the order flow that's in the mempool. And to do that effectively, you need low latency access to all of that. So we also do provide our services to builders. Interesting. Let's, let's take a step back. You were doing sniping before. How come you didn't just pursue doing MEV if it was working and you eventually got the skills? I guess you did pursue it after that, right? Or did you just skip it off? Yeah, so we stopped. We had a little team that was doing liquidity sniping on tokens. And basically, we stopped when the Flashbots auction came out, mainly because we were immediately priced out. Like, we, we didn't have a lot of upfront capital to pay these bribes that some people were paying. And so we got priced out pretty quickly. And also, on a personal side, it's not really very fulfilling <laughs> to, to just snipe Bitcoins all the time. So I really wanted to pivot to something else. So I also didn't really try anymore after that. For me, that was like a sign, okay... Just move on to something else. And I did. Some people were paying bribes of like 80 to 100 ETH. Same thing you see now with like the Telegram bots. Just these ridic ridiculously high bribes. And so we couldn't really compete with that. And I also wasn't that interested in it anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. But you got to follow whatever you're interested in at the end of the day. If you have passion for something, it's way better motivation than trying to brute force something that you're not really interested in. If it's just for money at the end of the day. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I feel like money-driven stuff isn't... I think it's good for short-term to enable a long-term plan, but to have it as a sole goal doesn't make any sense because, I mean, you can make money in any way, really. I mean, you see people doing social media, tech, anything. You could just go on the street and start selling stuff. <laughs> make some designer clothing or something. No, yeah, it's true. It's true. But I think in the end of the day, you, you also want to add some value. Just participating in a zero-sum game for me wasn't like a long-term strategy. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people do it short term, unless you just go down the route of joining an institution, NDAing your life away, something like that. They make ridiculous money, though. At what cost? At what cost? Exactly. Do you want to sell your soul? No, nah, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> but what was like the hardest thing for you guys to even get to the point of being like consistently neck and neck with Bloxrout as one of these aggregators of all the mempools? That is a good question. So in the beginning, we actually we started out writing our software in Go and we extracted a lot of like the P2P stuff from the Go Ethereum implementation. And it was efficient, but it wasn't that efficient. So we wanted to run on these low resource VMs and basically that capped the amount of peers that we could connect to per node. So in the beginning, we, we had some problems with some transactions not being seen, other transactions just being way too late because like network inherently has a lot of randomness in it. And to decrease the randomness, you really have to connect to a ton of peers. 
So th- that was the challenge in the beginning. Then when we switched to Rust, like the Red stack, that kind of went away because it's super efficiently implemented due to the fact that it's Rust, but also due to the fact that the paradigm team behind Red is really skilled. I learned a lot from their implementation in general. But once we switched to that, it really allowed us to compete more effectively. If that was a major reason into competing effectively, wouldn't it make sense to build an upgraded version of Ref then? I mean, it would if we had a a large team and and a huge amount of resources, because it's not like it's simple to build a full DevP2P or, or just like Ethereum networking stack. It really takes a lot of time. And they did it like super effectively. So I'm not even sure if there's a lot that we can improve on. Because they do allow you to play with the parts. It's very modular. You can take away, like I said, anything you don't need. And so you can practically, I think, max out performance by just making sure that that you're mindful about how you're implementing this. So yeah, I mean, it would be an interesting challenge to build it from the ground up, but I don't know if it's a good way to spend resources at the moment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think... Yeah, if it, since it is modular, you could just strip out all the pieces you don't need and just have that one piece for for basically grabbing all the stuff from the peers. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I don't know how that doesn't sound too difficult though. Yeah, if if you could just strip out everything that you don't need, I don't know. Well, yeah, there there are some things like on the networking stack, for example, there's like these handshakes and there's challenges that peers send to you to make sure that you're actually following the chain. So you do need some sort of infrastructure to deal with challenges uh, that need some state. So for example, there's this uh, thing called the checkpoint challenge where they, they send you a request for a certain header and you have to be able to to provide them the header or otherwise they, they will disconnect you uh, from you. So you do need some like other infrastructure in place. And it's not like just take out the P2P stack and run it. Like there, there are some other like things that you need to, to figure out. That sounds interesting. <laughs> I feel like it would be a fun game though. Like, yeah, maybe not like best resources, but if if it is something that gave you a giant boost, I mean, wouldn't that say, I guess diminishing returns the further you go on, but um, who knows? Maybe it is like the, the biggest edge you could get is like creating this custom, this custom client that, well, if you do it and it's better, then that means someone else has to compete by doing the same thing, right? Uh, yes. So I don't know what whatever things can you do apart from that I guess like try and beef up these computers on these servers to to process stuff faster and that's probably the only thing I can really think of but what else beyond that Yeah I mean so if you want to play it fair like there's a a max there's probably like a equilibrium where everyone is about the same speed what you can also do is like play it unfair and and just buy a transaction straight from MetaMask and make sure that they, or like, yeah, from, from Infura, make sure that they're sent to your nodes first before anyone else. But like, but th- then you're doing like the private order flow kind of, kind of thing. And it's very not good for the ecosystem. I would say we're also not trying to do that just to be clear, but I mean, yeah, like on the technical side, there's only so much that you can do. That's true. You can make sure that you're very closely located to all of these transaction broadcasters for like the, the the large volume transactions but you also have to make sure that you're connected to a lot of peers for i don't know sometimes a random peer will will send a transaction that's high value and you want to be able to capture that fast but yeah there, i agree with what you're saying that there's like a you can't keep on improving and at some point if everyone has the same technology there won't be any like alpha anymore 
It, it sounds like the it just sounds like block building all over again. You build a really good infrastructure, and I mean you don't even need really good infrastructure as well. I mean, if you're getting private order flow, that's like an edge no one else has. It takes away from the competition and gives to you. So interesting. Yeah, these exclusive deals are they're the bane of blockchain. I think. Yeah, yeah, it's it's annoying. It centralizes it completely. Yes makes it a whole networking game which is actually why a lot of searches are starting to build builders and trying to put their faces out there a lot more because they need they realize that it's all an exclusive order flow game and yeah i mean once you already have that edge it's hard to it's hard to even steal it or get get close to that place unless you have your own edge of similar value no one can actually come and compete then because you have all these like exclusive i guess order flow and then you you send it to your block builder and no one else has it and if the block builder is getting these blocks that are or transactions that are really valuable like for example win all the time. yeah they win like permanently because you can't win because uh, you can't even compete with these exclusive deals right so it, it's like the telegram bots if imagine if like a telegram bot had like let's say all of them like maestro banana gun unibot all of them whatever else there is if they all sent to one builder that builder just wins <laughs> no one can compete if, if they got like an exclusive deal with one of the wallets that are giant then they just win automatically as well because it's a ton of flow that and it's like retail and without retail i mean there's nothing else something has to like fundamentally change i think because uh i don't know how you would even deal with that what you're describing are like the the negative side effects of, of bb a little bit in that you have decentralized block pr- producers. First of all, you have searchers that send their bundles to like block produ- block builders and have to pay for that. So for them, it's all, like it would even be better if they become a block builder themselves. And then you have block builders that have to buy block space from proposers. So they also have to pay pay some amount of money to get their block included. Not a small amount mm-hmm. of money, I should say. And so like the in the end like it does become likely i think that there will be some sort of vertical integration which is yeah kind of what what people were avoiding in the first place but yeah i don't know like centralizing pressures that they always seem to come up in in different ways uh, it's very hard to deal with but i do agree that if you like vitalik's endgame if we want to go there is like you have centralized block production and then decentralized verification or validation or whatever you want to call it if you wanna, if you wanna have some sort of censorship resistance, then you should probably the the way that it currently works is we should probably look into uh, like inclusion lists and censorship resistance lists and stuff like that because centralized block production is not really that much of an issue as long as you can prevent censorship, which is I think the end goal of a decentralized system. So. Yeah, I mean, people are, are definitely catching on to these problems. We have a lot of criticisms of PBS. Um, I'm not really a critic of PBS because I don't know what would be a better solution. But there's definitely some issues that need to be solved. Yeah, I mean, just imagine a government as a block builder and they could subsidize with whatever the money they print, right? Yeah, <laughs> and they, well, they just, yeah. The interesting thing is if you have inclusion lists and they refuse to include certain transactions, they won't be able to propose a block. So then it becomes an interesting like dilemma for them. Like, do we keep on being a validator and just make sure that no blo- blocks are submitted at, at our slots? Or do we just step out of the game because there's, there's not much that we can do? Interesting. Yeah, like the incentive alignment is just not the... Because running a validator is quite expensive as well. Hmm. 
well, like running multiple to make it even worth it. I think it's like, how many validators? Is, is there like 800k or 80k? Oh, I think it's 897,000. Yeah, so yeah, around 800k. Yeah, so I mean, to, to even make that profitable, you need a, a ton of them. Because, <laughs> like, yeah, what are the chances I, of getting in, in one? Depends how many you have, but like to run one validator is 32 ETH, I, I believe. And then yes. the cost of running it live. I know it's a big overhead. The so. cost of having 1% market share in a validator market is, in a validator space is 600 million at the moment. Yeah, it's a small amount. I could do that. I'll raise some money for that. Yeah, yeah I'll, do a, I'll do a seed round, guys. Feel free to invest <laughs> in my validator business. No, it's crazy. It's crazy. Where do you see the, the future of, of Chainbound going? You're obviously working on Echo and, and Fiber, but is there anything else in the pipeline that you want to do or build on top of where do you see this all going yeah so we're right now we're in a bit of a brainstorming phase i would say because we like i said we do recognize that mev is largely a zero-sum game and we also recognize that a lot of applications are going to start internalizing their mev like you see Outswap, for example they have all of this a whole off-chain auction system that, yeah. that's meant to like give users the best prices by internalizing all of the mev and so the badge that finally lands on chain is largely order independent. And so ordering, I should say, ordering independent. So we do think a lot of applications are moving to that model of like off-chain coordination, off-chain MEV capture with on-chain settlement. For example, you interviewed Josh from Aori. They have the same model. They have an off-chain order book and then they match yeah, yeah. orders uh, off-chain and settle them on-chain, which I think like it, there are some like single points of failure there, but I think they should be able to decentralize that in the end. So I think like the fact that the MEV space is is probably, I mean, it's a zero sum game now and people are starting to realize that at the application level, you can also capture um, a lot of the MEV yourself. That's that's kind of a reason why we're we're looking further than the, the MEV space at the moment, because there are a lot of opportunities, I think, outside of the MEV space that are more, positive sum and so hmm. like we don't Even have any, more any concrete like, there's ideas there's a high chance of, of you doing something successful that like a protocol versus mev so it's a better time time opportunity cost another off-chain thing is like gmx for example gmx is you know a giant protocol and that's the on-chain stuff is really just for like submitting requests it's, it's like impossible to hack because it's all off-chain <laughs> isn't it so gmx is like the perpetual thing right the perpetual perp dex yeah like giant, yeah exactly yeah yeah i mean yeah it, it does kind of make sense and there are some like as i said centralization vectors like for example the cow swap order book is managed by the cow swap operator which like could become a, a, point, a central point of failure or like censorship could be exercised at that level but there's only so much that they can do like they can't steal money they can only make sure that your money doesn't like move in the way that you want it to move. But still, a lot of it can be solved with like on-chain constraints, with with slippage parameters, stuff like that. So it is, it is like if you want to have a really good full stack application, you're probably gonna gonna have to have some sort of off-chain logic, and and you see that too with Uniswap X now with the RFQ system. So we we recognize that there's probably some other avenues that we should explore. Well, you did mention that you guys gather data with Fiber, I believe. 
for that website, right? And you're building a stats section on your website yes. with need data, of course. <laughs> and you have Echo, which I think is very valuable if a lot of people send it. Are a lot of people sending their bundles to Echo or? Well, it is growing, but I wouldn't say that we have a really significant market share yet. Although it is enough market share to help like a, a starting up builder gain some flow to compete. So that's good. Should definitely do like some kind of... If you do end up, well, you already do the pricing with the fiber, you should do like a combo deal and like force it to be a combo deal. Because <laughs> like yeah, the, I mean, the, bundle, the bundle data is the most, one of the most like important pieces of data you can get. If everyone, if there's exclusive, well, yeah, I guess if people are just sending exclusively to certain, to certain builders, well, I guess they probably wouldn't send to an aggregator, but if they did, then you would be able to see that exclusive data anyway. But I think the main proposition is like that data could be used for, for I guess, finding patterns and stuff. So I wonder if you're looking into any like ML things or doing any stat, stat probability things regarding. Oh, no, at the, the moment, at the moment, we're, we're not really looking into that. Like we collect a lot of data, but we, we haven't really had the time to analyze a lot of it. And also on the, like the, the bundle, so the echo side, we, we don't. We only keep the bare minimum because we don't want to save too much uh, information on our users. What we do is we 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 cache bundle hashes and like the bundles, and then we we check incoming like new blocks to see if the bundle was included, and then we use that to send the confirmation uh, to the user. So so that's like some data that we have to keep, and also we, we provide dashboards to users where they can see like. Their average inclusion delay, which builder includes their blocks, includes their bundles most of the time, and mm. like stuff like that. So we only keep the data that's necessary to provide these essential like analytical services. Interesting. Yeah, I'm really liking the data stuff because all the interesting data comes from like the pending pending things. So if it's like pending transactions or something you need infrastructure to get, that's that's like the sweet rich data that you need but you can only get it if people actually send you stuff so it's yeah, a that's true. That's true. gate kept data which is pretty shitty but i mean everything else is public though but not as interesting as that, as that data before we did the call you mentioned you're very interested in the network stack on the execution layer and the consensus layer with the different properties they have that affect latency and the kind of game theory you can do between these things tell me more about that because i don't know anything about that <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, no for sure so when we started out with fiber it was purely a mimble stream so the only thing we did was listen on the execution layer network which was built from the ground up by i think the go ethereum folks maybe in when ethereum launched basically because the there wasn't really anything out there that could cater to what they needed. So they built it from the ground up and they, they called it DevP2P. DevP2P is a, is a gossip protocol in that you have messages that are sent. Like there's a distinction between a full message and basically a message announcement. So for example, if a peer receives a transaction, they will broadcast the full message to only a small subset of all of the peers. And then they will broadcast the announcement in the form of a hash to the other peers. And if the other peers don't have it, they can request a full transaction and stuff like that. And this is basically to, to keep uh, bandwidth manageable. And so, yeah, there, there are all sorts of peculiarities that happen and a lot of randomness that, that occurred due to it being uh, like a gossip network. Yeah, that was interesting. But when it, the Ethereum consensus layer launched and we wanted to provide a block stream, we really had to learn a whole new networking stack because the consensus layer networking stack is implemented in libp 2 p which is 
a super modular, again, a super cool library built by the Protocol Labs folks, which are the guys between Filecoin and IPFS. And it's super well thought out. It's it's really, I think it's, they've ran tests for years on it because they have all these sorts of features, all these sorts of security. They thought about security a lot and, and all of this stuff. And so they have peer scoring natively implemented. They have like self-optimizing P2B networks and stuff like that. So it's super cool. And we really had to relearn a lot of it from scratch because it has way more features than on the execution layer. It's really super interesting. Like we have this data where we timestamp each message on the execution layer and we do the same for messages on the consensus layer. So on the execution layer, that's transactions and on the consensus layer, that's blocks. And we do notice that blocks are, even though they are much larger than transactions, in some cases, they are even propagated faster than transactions globally because the P2P network is much more optimized. It's like a self-optimizing network, you can say. And so it's really cool to see that in action. And also we learn a lot from LIP2P in terms of like peer scoring and how gossip networks work and all of that. So it's really interesting. You mentioned peer scoring. It scores all the peers internally in some storage? Yes, that's right. So if a peer sends you, it allows the application basically to specify the rules of peer scoring. So every time a peer sends you a message, you can rate that message. You can say like, okay, this is a valid message. So peer score stays the same. Ignore this message, which means peer score stays the same, but we don't forward it to other peers. Or it's a bad message and you can apply a reputation penalty or a score penalty to the peer. And this is like with regards to spamming, this is with regards to peers that just send malformed messages or basically use a wrong private key or anything like that. So you can kind of do a lot of civil resistance stuff at the network level already, which makes the network very resilient. It's also probably why the consensus layer guys decided to go with LIP2P because, I mean, the consensus layer is, is super critical in the function of Ethereum. And so it has to be a battle-tested stack. So is it like a reputation system of similar to Flashbots where there's like priority and not priority or not really? No, I don't think, at least I don't think it's anything with priority. It's, it's more like they want to make sure that there's not that much spam. They want to make sure that you kick peers that are sending you duplicate messages and stuff like that. So basically it's just about the quality of peer and connections. Okay, so no like prioritization because that would be kind of interesting. That's a priority queue in the peers completely alpha never discovered that might be interesting people start digging in it actually is is that <laughs> actually hmm. i should look into that <laughs> oh god the alpha <laughs> oh boy you never know bro i don't think a lot of people really get that deep into it though there might be stuff in there because it is a giant code base at the end of the day yeah it's true it's true and so yeah i think a lot of alpha these days is in understanding the technologies that are being used and understanding them very very deeply so that you can benefit from that so if someone wanted to get into all this stuff, how would you recommend it? Since you've already done it, you've already experienced all the hardships, if you were to do it again to get to a position where you are now and you can read these different layers and do all this mempool stuff, like the node optimization and whatnot, what would you do to get into this kind of position again now that you've kind of gone through it all? That's a good question. I think, okay, everything I say, you should have ChatGPT4 ready for you by your side to answer any questions you might have. So I would start uh, with probably not reading the, there is a spec for DevP2P. I, I don't think I would start with that because it's quite, well, it's really formal. It doesn't have a lot of information, honestly. I would start basically by going to the Red code base if you're a Rust guy 
go into the get code base if you're a go guy and start looking for all of the issues related to p2p networking just go through the implementation and look at all the comments and i guess just build up a picture of what's actually going on once you have that i would go to the specs and dive a bit deeper into how all of the sub compared like you have the discovery layer you have the eth sub protocols you basically have a lot of modular components inside of the dev p2p stack and then i'm gonna plug an article here by daniel marzik from Flashbots, and it's called The Hitchhiker's Guide to P Overlays in Ethereum Consensus. And that basically goes over how the P2P network on the consensus layer works, and it goes over it in great detail. It's really well explained, and there's a lot of interesting topics in that article that you can just research independently that will give you a very good picture about the whole. And then Basically, just the lib P2P implementation are very interesting information because most of the time they're implemented in a very modular way again and super easy to follow, actually. So there's a Rust lib P2P. Basically, there's a lib P2P implementation in practically every language that's popular. So I would do that as well. And then the lib P2P docs in general are also very good to go over. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people really get this deep into it. It's always the MEV, <laughs> people show the MEVP earnings and talk about all these different kind of strategies and whatnot. So it, this stuff never really gets touched unless you're like really deep into it and trying to compete super heavily. And there's no manual to the evil getting into it. No, not really. But it is super interesting, in my opinion. So I would definitely encourage you guys to check it out. Yeah, go go compete with Chainbound. Oh, yeah. Contact us. Like, we're hiring, so... <laughs> oh, all the hiring. Also works. You can do that. Also, yeah. also join them <laughs> instead of competing with them. Interesting. So where do you, where do you see the in- industry going and where do you think it should go from, from a networking point of view, just what you've seen? Oof, that is a tough question, man. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to dumb down your question and make it about Ethereum only, if that's okay, because that's where I know the most. So I think there are a lot of interesting problems that are related to P2P networking on the consensus layer specifically, because like there is this thing called single soft finality, which is it basically makes sure that every block that is proposed on Ethereum that gets voted through will become finalized immediately, which is different from what we currently have, which is where you have this Casper finality gadget that basically runs behind your LMD ghost protocol, which is the one that appends new blocks and decides the fork and all of that stuff. So, And for single slot finality, it would be a huge UX boost. So basically you won't have forks anymore, which I think is super important for multiple reasons. But to achieve this, we basically need to... It's a very hard networking problem because you need to have close to a million validators voting on a single block in less than 12 seconds. And all of these votes are signatures and all of these signatures need to be aggregated in under like 12 seconds. So it, it becomes a huge networking problem. And I think there are some like interesting things with regards to how we can make the networking more lightweight than it currently is. Like currently we have a lot of committees and subcommittees and it becomes a, a big mess basically, although it is necessary in its current form. But yeah, I would just, in general, I would say on the P2P layer, on the consensus layer, there are a lot of interesting problems related to networking. You would think that having 12 seconds is enough because there are these blockchains that have like 400 millisecond block times like Solana. But if you have this many validators, it really becomes a challenge even on the networking layer, even with 12 second block times. So yeah, 
there's a lot of communication happening. So it's a bottleneck within the network or just between that communication, right? So 100%. And I think just in general, when people design protocols, they, they should really think about the P2P layer because in the end, it's one of the primitives that, that people that you have to use if you want to build a blockchain. If you build it right, it can, can have a lot of good benefits later down the line. But if you do it wrong, you can have some problems with it. What do you think Solana's one? We just saw today that they Solana for the first time in history passed Ethereum's volume in the seven-day chart to $9 billion, which was insane. I think Ethereum was like 8.9, 8.8, something around that. But that's still insane, though. So I wonder if you're exploring a Solana as well. Yeah, well, currently we are not. But I think Solana really is, as you can see from the, these stats, they're trying to solve a different problem, in my opinion. They're really trying to become, in the words of the CEO, the NASDAQ on a blockchain or something like that. So they're really optimized for trading. They have this global state machine, no sharding, no rollups, and you can basically trade very fast with the 400 millisecond block times. But the trade-off here is that to run a validator, you need really beefy hardware. Uh, you need uh, really good networking and basically anything, everything that like Ethereum is, is not trying to impose on its validators because it want to remain as decentralized as possible. So I think it's trying to solve for a different problem. And right now you, you see a lot of liquidity still being on Ethereum because most people consider it to be the most secure chain. Like it also, I think, so at least hasn't had any downtime, which with Solana is not the case. So I don't know. Solana is definitely improving, I think, because they, they haven't had any downtime in a long time. They, they have had downtime, which it shouldn't be held against them forever, but at least it's important that you don't have downtime or People are going to trust you more if you haven't had downtime in at least like five years or something. We have to pause everything. Yeah, yeah, we have to pause the whole, the, the global financial system, which is not great. But yeah, I mean, yeah, so for us, it would be definitely interesting to look at Solana. Definitely now that that volume is increasing. But the thing is just since we are still a small team, we have to be careful about where we allocate all of our resources. And Solana would be a big project. Yeah, definitely. I feel like liquidity flows in and out of Solana quite often, but I think during the bull market, it would definitely be one of the bigger ones. It would be like Ethereum and Solana, I think. But you never know. All money eventually flows into Ethereum. Yes, it does seem like that. It does seem like that. And also with Solana, you just had this huge airdrop, which might also, like, this might also boost the volume, at least for now, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be like this for a long time, right? Yeah, that's a good point. I think that was a $200 million airdrop. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like a Celestia, another one, which is a crazy airdrop. That makes sense, actually, why it's so popping off right now. If it's a $200 million airdrop, yeah, the trading volume would be insane. Some good liquidity injection. Quick little injection of $200 milli. Nothing too serious. But man, it's been such a pleasure having you on. I'm glad I got to be the one to have you first on the podcast world. Hopefully you do many more and we see some great things happening with Chainbound. Hopefully you come number one with just your small team and rule the world. <laughs> we're trying. We're trying. We're trying our very hardest. Yo, you have to go into the true mem pirate arc and take over the seas, the mempool seas. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. You figured out where my handle comes from. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's like mempool pirate, but that was too long, so I made it mem pirate. Yeah, exactly. I got it day one. Don't worry. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. And I'm keen to see what happens. And when you're down the line, we'll definitely talk again on the podcast. And until then. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me, man. It's been a great first podcast. No stress. Yeah. I told you it'll be good. That's another one down for the books. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hopefully it was useful. But, you know, until next time, man pirate, I'll see you in the seas. 
Yes, sir. Ahoy.